Welcome to episode 51 of the Charles C.W. Cook podcast. Happy New Year. 2024 is now upon us, so that'll be fun. This week, I want to talk about sports. Partly because I think it's an interesting topic, but mostly, to be perfectly honest, because I need the catharsis. I went to Nashville on Sunday to watch the Jacksonville Jaguars, which is my team, play the Tennessee Titans, which is decidedly not my team. And the Jaguars lost. Now, for those of you who don't follow football or who don't follow the AFC, or who don't follow the Jaguars, that mattered a great deal, at least to me, because by losing, the Jaguars missed both the playoffs and missed out on winning the AFC South for the second year in a row, and handed that title to the Houston Texans. And not only that, but by losing the Jaguars completed what has to be one of the greatest late-season collapses in the history of sports. Just over a month ago, the Jaguars had won eight games and lost three. They were in contention for the best record in the AFC. The New York Times playoff predictor calculator had their chances of making the playoffs at 99%. On December 4th, I went to their game against the Bengals here in Jacksonville, which was the first appearance on Monday Night Football in 12 years, and the atmosphere was celebratory. The team had a terrific record, and if they won, they'd be the number one seed in the AFC for a little while. But on Sunday in Tennessee, the atmosphere was funereal. Six games later, they were out, having lost five and won one, with that victory coming against the worst team in football this year, the Carolina Panthers. That cliche about it being the hope that kills you is a cliche for a reason. And the thing is, I know I joke around a lot on this podcast. I know I engage in hyperbole, but... I'm completely and utterly serious when I say that this loss made me truly unhappy. I was genuinely sad, down, depressed, morose. I felt it physically and emotionally. I woke up the day after and I remembered that it had happened and I was plunged instantly back into upset. Now, I'm old enough to understand that relative to the other things that make me feel this way, this one doesn't matter cosmically. And that if I had a choice between bad sports losses and anything else, I'd take the bad sports losses all the time. 
But that doesn't change the fact that it actually made me feel that way. I still feel that way. I'm carrying this with me in the way that I might a bad breakup or a job loss or some terrible news. I keep playing the key moments over and over again. What if that ball had been caught? What if the referee had spotted the ball properly on the goal line? What if five weeks ago we hadn't missed that field goal? In one way or another, I suspect I will always ask those questions. I still do it with bad soccer losses I watched as a kid. I do it with the AFC Championship game from 2018 or the Yankees-Astros series in 2017. And what interests me is why. My mother, who doesn't especially like sports, used to ask me and my dad this question. Why? Why do you care so much about this? You don't even know any of these people, she would say. And that's true, isn't it? I don't know any of those people. Now, it's true I live in Jacksonville, where the Jaguars play. But I know for a fact that I wouldn't feel any less intensely if I'd picked a team from California. In soccer, I'm a Manchester United fan because my dad is from there and he's supported them since the Munich Air disaster in 1958. But I'm not from there. In fact, I've only ever been there to watch games. I have no connection to that city or that community whatsoever. And now I live in America, 4,000 miles away from Manchester, and I still care. My mother used to ask, why do you refer to the team as we? You're not on it. Which is also true. And despite my secret hopes, I don't think the Jaguars are likely to pick me to play on the team anytime soon. But I talk as if they have. We this, we that, we the other. I'm not much of a joiner. But here I join. I have season tickets, I travel around the country, even internationally, watching the team. I listen to sports radio on which it's discussed, I wear t-shirts featuring its logo. Outside of my work and my family, there's nothing to which I pay more attention. And over the years, I've come to think that one either gets this viscerally or one does not. One either likes sports or one does not. One either gets it or one does not. I'm a sports guy. The better the spectacle, the more I like the sport. But that aside, I am one of those people who will develop a rooting interest quite quickly just to make it more exciting. My long-standing joke about this, which isn't really a joke, is that if I was at a bar and two guys started racing snails, I'd not only be into snail racing within about 10 minutes, but I'd have a favorite snail, and I'd probably start placing bets on it. Why? I don't know. I'm not sure why. I suppose it's partially innate and partially that I was raised to expect to like sports. But I am convinced that it's healthy. And I'm not just saying that so that I have a ready excuse during football season. I really do think that it's healthy. 
Clearly, there are a lot of obvious benefits to playing and watching sports. It teaches teamwork, it teaches turn-taking, it teaches one to learn and respect rules, and if you're playing it yourself, it's good for you physically. But above all that, in my estimation, it fills a human need for tribalism, which, if fulfilled in other areas, can be absolutely disastrous. Now, I call myself a conservative primarily because I do not believe that human nature changes. I think, give or take, that human beings were fundamentally the same 2,000 years ago as they are now, and that the challenge for those building institutions is to accept that and then to work out what to do about it. And that being so, I'm always worried about tribalism and about the violence that it can cause, especially in men, and so I'm interested in ways of absorbing or defraying it. And sports do that. All that excitement and energy and elation and rage is sated and indulged during a game. It's you v them. You love you and you hate them. You want to beat them, crush them, destroy them. You're in your uniform they're in their uniforms, as in some Napoleonic battle. And you fight. You have your songs and your chants, and worse besides. You engage in martial conduct. You attack, you defend, you strike, you target, you tackle, you knock out. But at the end of it all, you go home alive. And without having destroyed your civilization in the process. And that is inordinately valuable. It's cathartic. It's appropriate, too. From time to time, I see people on both the left and the right lamenting that Americans spend so much time and money thinking and caring about sports instead of, say, spending their time thinking and caring about politics. And frankly, I think this is bonkers. First off, the purpose of government is to create a space within which civil society can flourish. Sports are part of that civil society, and they always have been. To lament that Americans are thinking about the fruits of their government instead of about government itself is backwards. Second, people who care greatly about one or more sports teams tend to be less likely to start thinking about politics or religion or race as a team sport, which has not been a good development ever, and which ought to be discouraged. And third, sports really do cross every boundary. When I go to the games in Jacksonville, or even if I sit at a random bar in a random city that has TVs on the wall, I meet and talk to people of every color and creed and sexuality and age and political persuasion and so on. And for a few hours, we're all on the same team or at least on the same page. That really is e pluribus unum on a small scale. When I started thinking about this week's podcast, my intention was to talk about this a little until I got it out of my system and then to have a guest on to talk about something else. 
But frankly, we're now 12 minutes in. I don't really want to talk about something else. This is what I'm thinking about at the moment. I'm still stunned at what happened to the Jaguars this season. And I need the abreaction that comes with talking it out until it goes away. So, I think what I'll do this week instead is invite my colleagues at NR, or at least the ones who are sports fans, which is most of them, to tell me about their best and worst sporting moments. The ones that made them want to jump off a bridge, the ones that made them feel as if they just won the lottery while snorting cocaine. Oh my gosh, I got I got so much horror to tell you about that first one. I left the game before it was over alone. I, I said to my friends, I was like, I'm going home. I'm Jeff Blair. I'm a writer for National Review, and I'm here to tell you about the most heartbreaking moment of my sports life and the best one. So what people don't realize, they think of me maybe as a Chicago man. I'm a Nationals fan, Washington Nationals fan, because I was born and raised in the D.C. area. And, of course, the joke about the Nationals is that, first of all, they didn't exist until 2005. They were terrible forever. But once they finally got good in 2012, that was the season. We finally seemed to be a credible team. We were number one in our division. We went to the playoffs for the first time. And then in the National League Divisional Series against the hated St. Louis Cardinals, basically the worst thing ever that's happened to me in my life happened. Game four. I went to game four in D.C. It was great. We won on a walk-off home run by Jason Worth, I think in the 10th inning or something like that. There's nothing better than an extra innings walk-off victory. So we had the momentum in our minds for game five. And in fact, we got out to a six to nothing lead in the third inning. This was done. It was on the books. The Washington Nationals were going to go to the championship series. This was an amazing moment. And then it all fell apart. The Cardinals started scoring. One run, two runs, one run, one run. Before you know it, it's six to five. Oh, we get another run back in the eighth inning. It's seven to five. We're going to be all right. And then the ninth inning begins. And we cough up four runs unanswered and lose the game nine to seven. The heartbreak of this was so intense. Me sitting there in the front row with my friend who had bought me tickets because we thought this is going to be the greatest moment for a national sports fan's life. I left early. I literally turned to my friend. I said, you guys, you guys can hang out. I'm, I'm driving home. Find your way home. I drove them there. I drove my friends to the game. I left without them. I knew what was going to happen before we had lost. I saw the bases getting loaded. I saw the lead slipping away, and I knew it would end. The game didn't end until I was on the George Washington Parkway driving home to my house, and I am certain that I did not leave my room for the next three days. I didn't read the sports page. I couldn't look at a newspaper. The heartbreak of that 2012 loss, I didn't think I'd ever survive it. Hi, my name is Luther Abel. Around here, I'm the ghost in the machine. Otherwise, I'm National Review's new Nights and Weekends editor. My worst sports moment was the Packers 2014 NFC championship loss to to the Seattle Seahawks, which um, 
was most devastating because I wasn't there to see the end of it. The the Packers were up 19 to 7 with minutes left. I mean, there was only maybe five minutes left in the game. The Packers had it. My girlfriend at the time, she wanted to leave the bar. I was like, fine, you know, I'll just turn the game on in the car. While we're driving, she's watching my face as I hear Russell Wilson rushing it in, Marshawn Lynch rushing it in. (laughs) In the space of four minutes, 53 seconds, I think it is, the Packers completely botched it. And then the Seahawks did this onside kick, and the Packers guy, who is supposed to just block for the guy who's supposed to catch it, I won't even say his name. He's dead to me, dead to all of us. He tries to catch it, but he screws it up. And um, just like that, the best Packers team since 1996 that should have gone to the Super Bowl and should have beat the Patriots was gone because we played weak offense, we went for field goals, and we just made the dumbest mistakes down the stretch that you cannot give up against teams like the Seattle Seahawks of the time who are just scrappy and invented points out of nowhere. I am Michael Brendan Doherty. I am a senior writer at National Review. For reasons unknown to me, my cousin was collecting basketball cards. I wasn't into NBA basketball. He gave me some extras. And for some reason, I locked onto the Utah Jazz logo and name because it was so ridiculous. It was so like Utah and jazz. It made no sense. And then NBA Jam came out. And I realized that Carmelo and John Stockton were amazing. I started following them year after year. And I remember the 1992 playoffs against the Western Conference Finals. They lose to the Trailblazers. 93, they're bounced out in the first round. 94, they get to the Western Conference Finals. They're bounced out by the Seattle Supersonics, you know, or whatever. They lose two years in a row to the Houston Rockets, who went on to win the championship. Every year, they seem to be getting better and better, and I'm like following their record in the newspaper when I, in the morning, and on Sports Center in the morning, and finally on May 27th, 1997, they're playing Houston again in the conference finals. It's Game Six. Utah has home court advantage throughout the Western Conference playoffs for the first time. They've secured it, and they're very formidable at home. It's been waiting six years for this. They fall behind in the fourth quarter by 10 points with three minutes to go. And then all of a sudden, John Stockton decides he is not losing this game. And in the last two minutes and 42 seconds, he manages two steals, two assists, and 10 points, including the buzzer-beating three-pointer to win the game and send them to the finals for the first time. And Greg Gumbel's screaming, John Stockton sends Utah Jazz to the NBA finals. Where were you? And I was in my living room in Brewster, New York. All right. Confession time. I was in my bed asleep. I had gone to sleep when they were down 10 points. So angry. Uh, and it was dejected and it was like, well, finally, you're going to have to do it at home the next day. 
And so really it was the next morning on Sports Center. You missed it. I missed it. And then I'm watching the highlights, like dreading it. And I realize I had missed the live moment, but I still went absolutely bonkers, spilled my cereal, frightened the dog, frightened my mother, just woke her up because I was like screaming. I had the absolute greatest sports moment, not live and with great reason to regret and kick myself for it. And um, vowed never, ever to give up on a... uh, great moment again i'm dominic pino i am the thomas rhodes journalism fellow with uh national review worst is easily the 2016 daytona 500 where martin tricks jr lost by about an inch to denny hamlin on the very last lap truex is very good on intermediate tracks He is pretty good on short tracks and has the worst luck of anybody in the world on super speedways. He's basically always gets in a crash that is not his fault and doesn't end up finishing the race. But this particular year, 2016, he was in the lead on the last lap. Denny Hamlin got a run coming off of turn four and they were directly side by side of the finish line. But the thing that made this particularly crushing is the way that NASCAR timing and scoring works is they're scoring loops around the track. So they're they're sort of spread out around the track. And every time cars pass over the loops, it'll update the scoreboard on the screen on TV to show you who's who's leading. And so Truex was leading at the last scoring loop before the finish line. And so when the cars cross the finish line, if you looked immediately up at the scoreboard, it showed Truex leading. And then like a second later, it flipped. And that was the thing that made it especially crushing because initially you were like, oh no, I don't know who won. I'm going to look up at the scoreboard and oh my gosh, Truex won. And then it flips. It's like, no. <laughs> and then you actually see the slow motion frame by frame to see how close it was. It was the closest finish ever in Daytona 500 history. And, uh, and Truex was on the wrong end of it. So that sucked. This is Philip Klein editor of national review online what was the greatest sporting moment of your life and why well i remember it very vividly which is jim lairitz's three-run home run to tie game four of the 1996 world series and this is which team the yankees against the Braves. and why was that so great Well, to give a little personal background, so I'm the youngest child by far with much older brothers. So when you have older brothers, you often feel as though you were born a little too late and all the the fun stuff happened before you were born. And this was particularly true with regards to sports and the Yankees, because I was born in 78, so I was an infant during that dramatic World Series. And I grew up hearing of those Yankee teams and Catfish Hunter and Reggie Jackson, which is with his three home runs against the Dodgers and so forth. Um, And during the 80s and early 90s, the Yankees were a mess. They never, you know, I never saw them make the playoffs. And because I was also a Jets fan, 
uh, and a Knicks fan who had so many disappointments in the 90s. Basically, I'd gone my whole life without any of my teams winning a championship. And so the World Series was very exciting. But in the beginning of that series, it was just we were up against the Braves, who just had the most insane pitching staff. And we got blown out in the first game. The rookie, Andrew Jones, just went wild. I think we lost 12 to 2. And then we lost game two. We basically couldn't do anything against Greg Maddox. And then game three came, and we won a narrow game. And then game four starts, and we're losing. It's in Atlanta. We're losing 6 nothing, And it's just feeling like a pit in my stomach. And it's just like, this is over. We're just going to lose this series 4-1. to one. And you're almost resigned to that. But we start chipping away, make it 6-3. to three. And then our substitute catcher, Jim Leritz, comes in with two men on in the eighth against their flame-throwing relief pitcher, Mark Wallers. And you're just in the back of your mind, you're like, could it happen? But you you kind of don't want to think it. And then he takes a 2-2 pitch and knocks it out of there. And it was just, I remember I was in college at the time, and it, it was just... I went completely nuts. And even though you didn't want to jinx it, it didn't. Eventually, they won the game in extra innings, and it was still 2 2. So we still had to win two more games. But it was just at that moment, you knew that they were going to, that the momentum was going to shift and they were just going to win the World Series. And that was just, to me, it was just like a combination of just the euphoric moment, but also when it happens for the first time and you're like, you feel like, wow, like I've seen something actually exciting happen in sports um, to one of my teams. That was, that was special. This is Zach Kessel. I am a William F. Buckley Jr. Fellow in political journalism at National Review. Why, out of all things, do you care so much about sports? Why do I care so much I think part of it is that I've just, I've been emotionally invested for so long. It's not something I don't think that you can reason yourself into. I think sports fandom is a lot like religious faith in that regard. My worst moment in my lifetime of following professional sports was not during a game. Uh, It was not anything that happened on the field or on the court. It was the 2019 NBA draft lottery. I've been a Knicks fan as far back as I can remember, and for someone who was born in 2000, like I was, it's been a pretty tough existence. And in 2019, the Knicks finally had the worst record in the NBA. They'd had years of having, you know, the fifth worst record, the sixth worst record. But in 2019, they'd had the worst record. They traded away Kristaps Porzingis, who was the great hope of the franchise for a little while. And they were in pole position to get the first pick in the NBA draft. And as some listeners may remember, 2019's NBA draft, the top two prospects were Zion Williamson and John Morant. And, you know, those two careers have gone a little bit differently than we may have expected at the time. But at the time, they were two generational talents. So I was incredibly excited at the prospect of having Zion Williamson on the Knicks. And I remember watching the draft lottery at a school event with my friend Spencer on my phone. 
And uh, the ping pong balls are bouncing around. And we get to pick number three. And the Knicks had the greatest odds to get the number one pick. The ping pong balls go around. And it turns out that the Knicks had the third pick in a draft with two generational talents. I distinctly remember Spencer and I excusing ourselves from this event, going into the bathroom, and screaming obscenities for probably about 10 minutes. It really was, it really was a horrible moment in my life. Hello there. I'm Charles Cook, the producer of this podcast. I want to talk to you today about sad male sports fans like Jeff, Luther, Phil, and others. Some sad male sports fans spend their whole lives thinking about that unnecessary strikeout, that missed field goal, or that obvious pass interference call that nobody other than they managed to see. But it doesn't have to be this way. For just $5 a month, you can help these unfortunate men wean themselves off the teams they love so much to do something productive with their lives, like get into 12-string guitars or learn about the manufacturing process of high-speed HDMI cables. If you call or join online in the next 30 minutes, you'll receive a welcome kit with a photo of a sports fan in their living room before the game starts. One who, thanks to you, has been given a second chance. So do get in touch and help a sad male sports fan before it's too late. My name is Mark Wright. I'm the executive editor at National Review. I'm an Oklahoma Sooners fan. And in far second place, I'd say the Oklahoma City Thunder. And then maybe even below that, USA national teams. I think I have to tell you about the best moment of my life first. Best sporting moment of my life. Well, to, to, to set this up, the best sporting moment of my life was the 2000 National Championship game, Oklahoma versus Florida State. Um, I think it was January 3rd, 2001, and Oklahoma won 13-2 to to close out an undefeated 13-0 national title run for the seventh championship in, um, in school history. But what you have to understand about how we got there was that I was born abroad to American parents, and my, my dad was an Okie from, from Tulsa, Oklahoma. And through most of my life, through the first 10 years of my life from 1988 to 1998, when we moved back to Oklahoma, one of my only connections to uh, the place that I considered home, which was Oklahoma, was, was the Oklahoma Sooners. Um, I had the t-shirts. Um, we watched them when they were on TV. We even got cable when we lived abroad just so we could occasionally catch the Sooners on, uh, on ESPN. And they'd be on ABC for you know maybe one or two games a year, and so I loved I loved the Sooners. I, I followed them. I read about them. I, I I idolized Barry Switzer and Bud Wilkinson and the Boz, and I w- would travel home and hear the stories of how good they used to be. The only problem was that in the '90s the Sooners were terrible. They had made a couple of consecutive bad head coaching hires, and from 1993 to 1998 they had six consecutive losing seasons, and that does not happen in Oklahoma ever. It was the worst consecutive stretch of um, on-field performance in the school's history. And it was kind of mind-bending for me to, to hear the tales about how good Oklahoma used to be and how they were the home of 
home of championships, as, as Barry Switzer used to say, but then they were just terrible on the field. We moved back to Oklahoma in 1999. I should say I moved to Oklahoma for the first time in 1999 because I was born abroad. We came to Oklahoma, and that was the same year that Oklahoma hired Steve Spurrier's defensive coordinator, a man named Bob Stoops, to be the head coach. And within two years, he had brought the Sooners all the way back to a 13-0 undefeated season in, in 2000. I was in seventh grade, and I remember watching the seconds tick off the clock and Oklahoma win a national title. And I just had assumed that this was the world being put back right, the way things were supposed to be, the way things ought to be. And it was my greatest moment. I, I, can, I can see the smiles on my family's faces, and I could see the relief on the older people in the room, all Okies, remembering how things used to be and how things apparently were again. I can honestly say one of the most viscerally memorable days of my life that day when they shut out that Florida State team and took home the national championship. Uh, my name is Calvin Corey. I am a content manager for National Review Online. As a Raider fan, we've had, oh man, a ton of bad memories over the years, but the worst was in 2016, and I still remember this like it was yesterday. The Raiders were 12-3. and three. It was just one of those seasons. Everything was coming together just right. Derek Carr was playing at an MVP-type level. He was in that conversation for MVP. It was week 16. It was the second-to-last game of the season. They were up, I believe, 34-13 to 13 against the Colts. Five, six minutes remaining in the game. Some people say that Carr shouldn't even, even have been in the game at that point. Um, he went back for a pass. He scrambled. Colts defender came and tackled him below the knees. Carr just buckled. And you can immediately tell. Every Raider fan knew immediately it was serious. Carr was rolling around on the ground. And the game broadcast, it picked up what he was saying. Like You could hear through the screen, Carr just yelling, it's broke, it's broke, it's broke. And immediately, like there was just tears, you know, flowing out of my eyes. I couldn't explain it. As a Raider fan, there was 15 years of pure mediocrity of losing every season. They hadn't had a winning season since 2002. Finally, you know, the year had came where it was our year. You know, we were going to battle it out in the playoffs um, and have a Super Bowl run. And right when Carr went down, every Raider fan knew it was over. And I'll never forget my, I was at home on Christmas vacation during that game. And my mom and brother, they were on a walk during the game and they came back and they opened the door and my brother, I'll never forget it. He was like, who died? <laughs> I was like, our season's over. Cars are, cars injured. He broke his leg. He's out. Like the season is over. And it was just, it was tragic. And I still remember it to that day. Um, just my worst nightmare come true. The best was well, when the Packers won the Super Bowl in 2010. They were a young team. They didn't. They weren't really supposed to be there. Can't quite recall their record, but it wasn't great. But they were hot. They were hot at the right time, and that's what you need. <laughs> I never saw the last play of that game because the Packers always did better when I looked away at the snap. And I take full credit for every time that worked and full blame for when that didn't. But... Um, we broke up the pass from Ben Roethlisberger to whatever Steelers receiver it was. And that was it. So everyone starts screaming and I look back at the TV and the Packers have won the Super Bowl. And I did what I could for the people I loved. I had a great feeling. 
Why do you do that out of interest? I do this too. Why do you do it? You know it doesn't help. I don't want to ever think that it was my fault that they lost. Like, (laughs) I want to contribute, right? We're part of the team. We have to give everything, even if it's (laughs) absurd, if it's stupid. Uh, To let the side down by not doing these little things is, is the height of betrayal. That's it. That's what I always tell people. They say, you, you are worldly enough to understand you aren't affecting the game. And I say, yes, but if I don't do it, I can't forgive myself. No, exactly right. Yeah, when, when I would watch games out of state, when I was stationed in California, I would only drink Wisconsin beer because I figured it would give the Packers more power than me drinking some local thing from the San Diego area. And you'd have to take a sip at every snap. That's just what one did. And it worked more often than it didn't. I'm Andy McCarthy from National Review. The thing I would say is football is much worse than baseball. A lot of my best memories about this stuff are are baseball memories. But the thing with football is when the disaster happens, you have to live with it for days. Whereas with, with baseball, there's often like something. My best baseball moment obviously, is game six of the 86 World Series precisely because of the agony part that goes with the ecstasy, which is that you were convinced the game was lost. Two out, 10th inning, down two runs. Even some of the guys on the team, the stars on the team, were actually in the clubhouse lamenting that, you know, how could we have this unbelievable 108-win season, win a miraculous playoff season, and then lose the World Series to the to the Red Sox. And then all of a sudden you get a hit and then there's another hit and another hit and you're, and you're back and you just kind of can't believe it while it's happening. You don't want it to end, but it's glorious when it ends that way. The problem is it, it only happens for the Mets. It happens like once every 40 years or so. And what's much more normal to happen is the sort of situation like I think 2007, 2008, where there's about 14 games left in the season and they really just need to win three to win the division and then they just lose and they lose and they lose and they lose like every day and you can just kind of feel it coming undone like everybody is tight everybody knows that like if there's a ground ball a second it's going through the guy's legs if there's a key offensive moment in the game you know your best players are not going to come through your best pitchers for you know, whatever reason sees up and they can't get it done. And it's like almost like a trance because that I remember the thing I remember most about that 2007 collapse, I think it was to the Phillies was that it went on for about two and a half, a little less than two and a half weeks. And every minute of it, I was, I found it to be excruciating in every part of my life. Like it was this thing, it was like this cloud that hangs over you every day. And you expect like not only the the games to go bad, you expect that everything in your life is going down the tubes with it. This is Dan McLaughlin. I'm a senior writer at National Review. Dan, what is your worst sporting moment of your entire life? I mean, I have a lot of candidates as a Mets, Giants, and Knicks fan, but... You know, really, I think the worst one is, to me as a Mets fan, the Terry Pendleton game. Um, It's maybe not the one that haunts me the most going back, but 
it, it was the worst at the time. To set the stage, this is 1987, September 1987, and, and the Mets the Mets had launched what I think should have been a dynasty and what felt like it should be a dynasty in 1986. And the 87 team was even more loaded with talent, but they were snake bit. They had seven great starting pitchers and had to use like 20-something starts from junk. So anyway, they had a bet caught up with the Cardinals. And Ron Darling was pitching a no-hitter, and Vince Coleman bunted, and Darling tore his thumb. Not only did it break up the no-hitter, it put Darling out for the season. And things went downhill from there and ended up with uh, Roger McDowell giving up a home run to Terry Pendleton at the end of the game. And then, you know, the next day, Dwight Gooden got blown out by the Cardinals. And it was just, it was just agonizing, because I've never followed a, another sports season more closely than the Mets in 1987, more obsessively. I mean, I was 15 years old at the time, which is kind of the peak sports fandom. And it just it just absolutely ripped my guts out. When you say haunted, what do you mean by that? You think about each play in your head, imagining it going differently? Yeah, I mean, if I look back to say something like the, the famous Charles Smith game with the Knicks losing to the Bulls and Smith getting repeatedly pushed back from the net, like, that sticks with you because the Knicks never made it. That Knicks team never won a championship. So I'm a little less haunted today by those Mets because, you know, they did at least win one championship in 86. The worst moment is sort of on the when the Yankees lost the World Series to the Diamondbacks in Game 7 in 2001 on uh, a Mariano blown slave and a Luis Gonzalez bloop single. Um, which I have to say, when I was preparing for this segment, I went back and watched um, the Jim Leyritz home run, but I couldn't bring myself to watch the Luis Gonzalez uh, hit because it's still too painful uh, to watch or almost to talk about. How long did it take you to get over that? Honestly, I still haven't gotten over it. <laughs> it's something you just don't get get over you play it back over and over again in your head yeah and and the reason why it just sort of stings is it, oftentimes i think part of the reason why it, sports can get emotional is you just often bring in a lot of things that are going on in your life around then as i said earlier in the with the jim layrid's home run a lot of it was rooted in me feeling like i never saw anything exciting happen but in this case it, that whole playoff run was very intertwined with emotions after September 11th in New York. And so, you know, obviously not to compare the two, the magnitude of the two events, but just in terms of where you are emotionally after 9-11, it was obviously there were a lot of emotions, feelings of a special vulnerability to being an American and being in New York and at the same time, a sort of fighting spirits like, you know, we're going to get the bad guys. And so in that series, you kind of had the Yankees who had just come off three in a row. They were this dynasty and it starts off a few weeks after nine 11, they lose the first two games in Yankee stadium. I was in one of those games and you, you just kind of feel like this sort of vulnerability, like the end of this dynasty, the last days. But then they rally back in that in the first round and they end up 
winning that series three to two. And that was the series with the famous Derek Jeter flip play along the first baseline, which preserved a one nothing lead. And they ended up winning that game one nothing. And then in the second round, they played against the Seattle Mariners, who had won 116 games um, that season. And so we were tremendous underdogs, despite having won three times in a row and still managed to win four to one that uh, series. And so it just felt like there was a certain magic in the air sort of post 9-11, like it's something that the city really needed after just the devastation of of 9-11 and just how many people it directly impacted in uh, New York City. And then it was kind of like we needed a distraction and something to get excited and happy about after that. And then the World Series, we went down initially, but then we rallied back and just had two absolutely dramatic extra inning wins to go ahead in the series. We got blown out in game six, and then it came down to game seven. And we gave Mariano a 2 nothing lead, which was typically just automatic. And just the, the Diamondbacks chipping away at it, including a Mariano throwing error on it to second base. And it was just sort of these sort of bloop, you know, incremental nipping, and then it was just to lose it on a bloop single. And it, it just still hurts because I feel like that just would have been such a great cap on the Yankee dynasty, and we really needed it at that time. My name is Claude Thompson. I'm the social media editor of National Review. My worst ever sports moment was a really dark time. And this might have gotten buried because a lot of things that have to do with CTE in relation to football gets kind of buried sometimes. And one of my worst moments was in 2012. And it, to be clear, I, you know, this, this didn't happen to me. <laughs> so um, I, I want to make it sure that this didn't happen to me. It's just, it, it's just a really hard time in sports uh, the the Chiefs, the Kansas City Chiefs, were about as bad as they could be. They were terrible. They had fired Todd Haley as their head coach. They had a GM in Scott Pioli that fans had bought airplane banners to fly over the stadium, begging Clark Hunt to fire him. And late in the season, we had a linebacker named Javon Belcher. I don't know if you remember this, Charlie, but he, in a Saturday before a game, he shot and killed his girlfriend in front of her mom and then drove to the parking lot of Arrowhead Stadium. Maybe in the Chiefs practice facility. Uh, I can't remember the exact where it was at, but it was at where the Chiefs were at. The GM came out. The interim head coach at the time, Romeo Cronell, had come out to try and calm him down. But in that parking lot there, he ended up killing himself in front of the team. And then the team had to go play the Carolina Panthers the next day. And just, it's a tragic thing that happened. And an uh, autopsy later discovered that he did have CTE. That's a greater conversation about taking care of players and making sure that, you know, the hits aren't killing them after the fact. But in that sense was about as low as Kansas City sports could get 
and for me as a fan because you just questioned everything at that point. You questioned whether it was worth it. You questioned whether this team was ever going to be worth anything. It was just the absolute rock bottom that you could vision for sports and what it was around because it's just the, the, the tragic loss of life and surrounded by everything else. But that's the most important thing was just so terrible that you're just like, I, I don't see what happens after this moment. And what did happen after that moment? Well, everyone got fired. The mom of Javon Belcher ended up filing a wrongful death suit uh, in relation to CTE, but I, I couldn't find any result of that. So maybe there was like a settlement that happened out of court, but that never got reported. So that would be surprising. Yeah, everyone got fired at the end of the 2012 season. And then that's when the Chiefs hired Andy Reid. Uh, yeah, Andy, it hired Andy Reid, and it all turned around after that. So, I mean... Yeah, I assume that has to do with your other. So what was your best sporting moment? The best sporting moment is, well, really, it starts in 2013. It starts in 2013 because Kansas City undergoes an entire sports renaissance in 2013. So really, the whole decade since 2013 has been a moment because other cities have enjoyed such bigger success, longer success, more exciting success. But for me, 2013 starts with the hiring of Andy Reid, and you finally feel like, oh, the, the Chiefs are going to turn it around. It's going to be different. They they get Alex Smith. It's it's going to be different. For them, they got better. So that's good. But it starts in 2013 because Sporting Kansas City wins the MLS Cup. It's the first championship the city of Kansas City had seen since uh, in years, in, in you know decades. So Sporting Kansas City wins the MLS Cup. Great. 2014, the Royals go to the World Series and lose to the San Francisco Giants. And you're like, what is happening? What's what's going on? Because this is this is great. Is this what other feels like to be in other cities? A big market? Is that what it feels like? 2015, they go back in one of the most raucous baseball seasons I can remember, and they win the World Series. Just sheer elation. I didn't even think it was possible. I don't even think I'll ever see it again. And then the Chiefs are good, but not great. They can't get over the playoff hump. They get Patrick Mahomes, and all of a sudden, everything changes. The entire world spotlight. In starting in 2018, when he actually starts a full season, hits Kansas City even more so than when the Royals won the World Series because football is king. And then they go on to win two Super Bowls, go to three Super Bowls, win two of them. And it's just when I go back and I look at, at the, the 10 years, just a moment in time that you're just like, wow, like, like I've had it great. I hope it continues, but like this has been absolutely amazing and i'm glad i could experience it and i'm glad that i can experience it with my dad and my brothers it's just incredible why do you care oh man that's a tough one and it definitely a question that i asked myself in 2012 you know was there a better outlet for my energy than this but there's something about it there's something you can't explain when you wear a jersey for the team, it, from the city you grew up in, from the the when you see the stands and you see everyone so excited in the stands, and everyone's cheering and screaming. And if you've never been to an NFL game, I'm begging you to go because it's incredible. But when you finally get to kind of 
see success for a team that you root for, that you've put time into, when you put your emotions on the line, when you finally get that reward of like a win or a winning season or a playoff victory or, you know, a, a championship, it creates something in you that you can't break. It's an elation that you can't replicate. It's a high that I don't know what drug users usually go through. I would imagine it's something similar, but just like the release when they won the Super Bowl in 2019, I was living in DC at the time. I threw open the sliding door to my balcony. I didn't care what was going on. This is the Southwest waterfront. I didn't care. I stepped outside my balcony and I just screamed just as loud as I could into the DC night. Cause it was just, I couldn't keep it inside anymore. It was just the biggest release I had ever had in my life to have that kind of joy, to see my team do it, to be the best world champions. It's just, there's nothing like it. The best is Manchester United's last second champions league win in 1999. This was 25 years ago when I was 14 and I'm still unable to watch the last five minutes of that game without tears streaming down my face. United had played nearly 90 minutes of soccer and they'd been absolutely awful. They were losing by one goal as they had been since minute six and they were going to fail and then in the space of two minutes they scored two goals, and then the final whistle went, and they'd won. Now, as I have discussed previously on the show and elsewhere, I'm incredibly superstitious when it comes to sports, and I was during this game too. Usually, when my dad and I watched Manchester United at home, I sat in a particular chair in a particular place in the living room. But for this game, because it was the biggest game Manchester United had played in 30 years. My uncle was with us, and so I was asked to give the chair to him, which I did. But with five minutes left in the game and United losing and everything apparently going down the tubes, I couldn't take it anymore. And so I asked my uncle if I could sit there instead, because my sitting there brought Manchester United luck. He said that that was fine. And the next thing I knew, United had won the game and the room had exploded. Everyone was jumping up and down and shouting. There was roaring from the pub across the street. Of course, I grew up opposite a pub. My dad came back with champagne. I had a small glass because I grew up in a country where that's normal. And it felt as if we just won a war. And if you think this is just in my head, here's how the winning goal played out on TV. Oh, is this their moment? Beckham into Sheringham and Solskjaer has won it! are the champions of Europe again 